and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin, James Fox along with us. It's draft season and we're hitting it hard and we're welcoming on Joe Doyle of Prospects Live. He's the MLB Draft Director for Prospects Live and boy, have they been hard at work during this draft coverage season. He's also a staff writer over at Lookout Landing, a part of SB Nation's MLB crew. They cover the Seattle Mariners. Joe, it's a pleasure to have you on. Couldn't think of uh, really anybody else to uh, discuss what Prospects Live is going through in terms of covering the draft class this year because I know you're on top of it and you know just having the conversation a little bit ago you guys have a lot of draft prospect profiles that you're putting together prospect profiles that you have as well I'm just curious how our viewers can find your stuff and then what our viewers and listeners can expect as draft season comes to a close here. Yeah, man, I appreciate the uh, the welcome introduction. So you can find all of our draft stuff over at prospectslive.com. There's an MLB draft tab there at the top. Uh, we just published our top 600 prospects on Monday. Um, yeah, but for every player, you can find uh, height, weight, school, um, you know, a blurb that's going to be anywhere between six and eight sentences on that player. It's always expanding. We're always looking to improve it. I'm sure the 2022 um, product is going to be even more comprehensive and expansive, but you know, our team is growing and we're going out and seeing more ball than ever. And, um, it's just, it's been, it's been a really, it's been a treat this year to, to throw together this, this process. So for you overlooking this project, I know, you know, you mentioned the, the detail attached to every profile and there's also video in-person scouting. What's it been like discussing just that process of your, uh, writers, your scouts, and even the scouts that you're in touch with, the communication-wise, what are some of the challenges that your team is dealing with, as well as some of the major league scouts that you're in touch with as well? Yeah, I mean, I think we're dealing with some of the same struggles that everyone is. Uh, this 2021 season was, it was a it was a great acceleration after what 2020 was. I mean, you only got 16 games uh, for most teams in 2020. You didn't get a Cape Cod season in 2020. So, so much of this class was pop-up guys that essentially went from, you know, 2019 freshman performers, some of which didn't even get on the field their 2019 season to, you know, exploding onto the, onto the spotlight here in 2021. So that was definitely the challenge with the college crop. And then on the high school side, uh, we didn't see too much of a slowdown. Uh, we've got three or four guys that go out and, you know, see all of the ball from the Southeast up into the Carolina triangle and the East coast up into Northeast ball. Uh, so seeing going out and seeing um, high school ball wasn't as much a challenge, but certainly staying abreast with what college guys are exploding onto the scene this year uh, was a unique challenge because as you can probably imagine uh, tracking, you know, 40 players from 300 different schools and what scouts are seeing uh, can be an undertaking. But I think we did a, I think we did a pretty good job here. You know, we, we talked to multiple people in this industry about, you know, this process and even thinking back to 2020 as, as things started to take shape in terms of the landscape of how scouting is going to change and how the draft changed from 40 to five rounds. Now there's 20 rounds this year and it got pushed back uh, to July 11th. What kind of wrinkle does that put into this entire process for major league organizations, for scouting directors, for scouts in general? And how does this process differ, obviously, outside of the obvious from there are less players being evaluated and considered in the 20-round draft? But in just 
the tangible sense we're seeing as the way major league organizations operate their franchises. Yeah, I think logistically, 2021 has presented some interesting wrinkles, uh, pushing the draft back one month. I, I, you know, with the time when it was announced, I thought it was a great idea, uh, you know, combine that with the College World Series and the All-Star Game and, you know, kind of just slam all of those uh, events into a one and a half week, two week period. I thought that was going to be great for the game, but we have certainly reached a point now where you're seeing a lot of these, especially high school athletes, uh, a lot of them have been done since May. Um, you know, we do have some Northeast, we do have some, um, you know, like Minnesota and, and Iowa and some of those states are, they're a little bit late. They're just wrapping up their seasons now, but the premier states, uh, Florida's and, and the, you know, the Georgia's and those belts of talent have been done for so long now that, uh, all of these guys are experiencing a little bit of prospect fatigue. And for us, we have been obviously, um, looking for different ways to uh, track these guys and see what's changing. But, you know, even the amateur scouts, the amateur scouts in the industry, and I was telling you guys this before we went on air, um, a lot of the amateur scouts have shifted away from amateur scouting over the last four to six weeks because there's just no baseball. So they're, they're moving to more pro scouting and preparing for the trade deadline and things like that. And so it is a, it's certainly a dead period as far as amateur baseball goes. And I think, uh, more and more, you know, organizations are craving for pri- uh, craving private workouts, and uh, the draft combine I thought was a was a nice new wrinkle, but certainly a different year in terms of logistics. Joe, what are the you know just in general the strong areas of this draft class? I mean, obviously, you know, as you know, the college hitters usually rise, and all of a sudden there's a bunch of guys going in the top fifteen that maybe you know, wouldn't have. That is definitely not the case this year with kind of a, a weak college class. I know the, you know, the prep shortstop class is good. So just what, what are the strongest areas? And then what's, what I guess is like maybe your favorite position group. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you can't really have a conversation about this class without starting at the prep shortstops. It, it might be, it might be the, you know, I, you don't want to throw a cliche around, but this might be the best prep shortstop class ever. Uh, with Marcelo Meyer, Jordan Lawler, Khalil Watson, Brady House. I mean, Colson Montgomery, I think for me personally and for some of our scouts, deserves to be in that conversation. Uh, you got, got guys like Maxwell Muncie and, and, and Mooney. And, you know, even the guys that you're going to see in the second round, like a James Triantos or a Jackson Merrill or Cooper Kinney, you know, these guys are, they project very, very well with the bat. And a lot of them project to stay at shortstop long term, which is not, is not that it's not all that common. So the prep shortstop class, well into the third round, you're going to have some pretty good value. The college pitching class, it's deep. Uh, it's not necessarily top heavy. I, I don't think it's as top heavy as, as people were thinking it was going to be. Jack Leiter remains a, an elite athlete, an elite prospect, I should say. Kamar Rocker, by most evaluators, is still considered in that upper tier top eight. But beyond that, you know, everyone else kind of seems to have a question mark, whether it be Bachman or Gavin Williams or Gunnar Hoagland with the injury. Ty Madden, you know, these guys all have a little wrinkle that makes you question, you know, is this guy going to be a starter long term? Are they going to be able to develop a third pitch? Um, so I think the college, you know, the college pitching class, again, you're going to find value into like the fifth or sixth round this year. 
the high school pitching class, especially high school righties, is very deep. You're going to be able to get value at the high school righties well into the eight, nine, ten rounds in. Uh, there's some good quality. Again, not terribly top heavy with the ex- uh, exception of Jackson Job, but I, I would say Job is probably um, one of the better prep pitching prospects that the draft has seen over the last few years. So that's something to keep in, keep track of. And then, yeah, like as you had mentioned, uh, the college hitters in this class, uh, certainly a, a peg down from what it usually is. I, I wrote a story probably two months ago um, detailing the least amount of college hitters taken in the first round in the last 20 years. And I think we project there to be four or five, three to five, somewhere in that round uh, range taken this year. And uh, that would rank, you know, two, three, four uh, or so out of out of 20 years. So it's a light year for college bats. And you're right. They do usually you know, rise to the top towards the uh, towards the actual draft itself. But it doesn't appear that that's going to be the case this year. Yeah, I mean, it seems like some might sneak in towards the end of the first round lately. Just, you know, reading some of the the big media types, like saying, mm-hmm. you know, some, some of these guys that, that might end up towards the back of the first round that we didn't see. But that's, you know kind of normal yeah how how much deeper is this draft because last year's draft was only five rounds you know i i don't know if this year is all that much deeper it's not as deep as we were expecting it to be the juco ranks um is not as strong as we were expecting it to be uh, ricky tiedemann logan henderson uh ronan cop there are good juco arms out there this year but I don't think as many of them rose to the top as, as we were expecting. I, you know, last year we were expecting some of these uh, Juco arms to go in the second, third, fourth round. And I think you might get one or two of those. The college arm class is interesting. You know, you look at a guy like like Tommy Mace, you look at Robert Gasser, Gavin Williams. Uh, those guys definitely would have gone um, last year in the, in the, in the draft had it been longer than five rounds, but Uh, That didn't end up happening, and so they're in this class, and I think what that does is it actually really elevates the college pitching in this class, but, you know, there's so many examples of guys that we expected to, college hitters, it just, it's it's amazing how light the college hitting crop is this year, considering, you know, guys like Parker Meadows, uh, or Parker Chavers, excuse me, uh, guys like that at, at Coastal Carolina went back to school and then they just didn't produce like most of us expected them to this year. So I'd say that was the one surprise that college hitters is as thin as it is, but the the college pitching crop is certainly deeper, deeper for it. I'd like to bring up a right-handed arm at six, six. He, he looks like a major league pitcher and that's Gavin Williams. What is it about Gavin Williams that is drawing so much attention to him and, and how likely is it that he falls to 22, if at all, and uh, what is it about his stuff that you see can translate to the big leagues quicker than most? Yeah, I mean, I think Prospects Live is the highest outlet that you can find on on Gavin Williams. Uh, I personally think he's a top 12 talent in this class. I think he is the fourth best college arm in this class. And he just, he has it all. He doesn't have a track record, but in terms of the arsenal and the body and everything that you're looking at here, uh, Gavin Williams is, for me, a, a pretty much a complete profile. The fastball's been up to 99. Uh, he commands it extremely well, which is a new development this year. But he sits 95 to 97. You know, we're not talking about a guy that gets into the sixth inning and he's chucking 91 to 93. This guy holds it. Um, and, and it's got good writing characteristics. You know, it's it's built for the modern meta. It's built for analytics. And I think there's teams that 
I'm surprised haven't fallen in love with that earlier in this class. He is 22 years old, so that's always going to be a hit against him, but that's what happens when you return to school. Big curveball. Love the curveball. Uh, great shape. He throws it really hard, 81 to 83, 80, up to 85 this year. And again, that's the sort of velo you want to see on a breaking ball at the big league level. The slider, again, I mean, 87 to 89. It's tight. It's got two-plane break. He commands it well. And then he's got a show me a show me changeup that's 85 to 88. Um, all of these pitches are usable. He commands them well enough to be weapons. I think the two breaking balls project plus for me. Uh, I think the changeup is fringy right now, but he shows enough feel for it that it could project up to average. And then you're talking about at least a plus fastball. So the knocks on Gavin Williams are, you know, last year didn't didn't pitch a whole lot in 2020 because of a finger injury. Missed some of 2019 with a finger injury. Uh, so kind of fluky injuries. And then when he was on the mound, he struggled to command the baseball, which is always going to be a knock on uh, a pitcher that wants to project as a starting pitcher. So, you know, you're talking about a guy that threw 82 innings this year. He walked just 21 batters. That's a, that's an extremely impressive line. And um, if you buy into the 2021 performance, uh, Gavin Williams, for me, is he's, he's a dude. And I think he's got low number two, maybe high number two upside in, in a rotation at the big league level. Yeah, so we're going to get into the White Sox a little bit here. You know, it is the Future Sox podcast, but he, you know, Gavin Williams, if they go college pitching, I mean, I think if Gavin Williams is on the board, that's, you know, probably an option of high likelihood. I know that the White Sox would love Ty Madden. I don't really see any way he gets down there, but those are the two names. But, you know, the guy that I want to bring up, you talked about him earlier, Colson Montgomery. You know, I think everybody, it was like one of the worst kept secrets in the world that the White Sox with Mike Shirley running the show really like Colson Montgomery as a Southern Indiana kid. I mean, I was hearing it up to, you know, 12 weeks ago even. Well, now Colson Montgomery's name's all over the place, even possibly as high as 10 to the Mets. I believe you tweeted something this week that, you know, you wouldn't be surprised if he goes really high. His stock seems to be improving. How high could he go at this point? And I guess what's just like the latest you're hearing with him, he got a lot of pub this week for the the combine too. Yeah, there there are teams inside the top 10 that have been doing their due diligence on, on Colson Montgomery. And I think... um you know, here's the thing about Colson. If, if he was 18 and a half and not 19 and a half, I think you're talking about a guy that is a top 10 pick and he's rivaling Brady House. You know, who's going to go first? Um, it, the, the issue that a lot of model teams have is, is the age. And he's an older high school player. Um, and that's, that's always going to be a knock against old school teams uh, or for old school teams. Yeah, but anyways, I'm, I'm hearing his name uh, being tossed around a little bit. Uh, just inside of the top 10, he's got plenty of suitors in the 10 to 20 range. Um, I've contacted or been contacted by uh, four scouts for four different teams that really like him inside that range. That doesn't mean that, you know, the um, the higher ups, the brass are going to pull the trigger or anything, but um, he has a ton of advocates all over the place. And him going to the MLB draft combine and posting one of the best agility scores for a six foot four shortstop really kind of calms some of the nerves of people saying, well, is this guy going to have to move to third base? The guy is quick on his feet and he's got a big bat. And I think that plays. So as far as Colson Montgomery goes, you know, he's kind of smattered all over uh, the first round and, and teams at the back half of the first or back end of the first round are still doing their diligence on him as well. He was just in uh, Tampa Bay with a, with a private workout for the Rays uh, a couple days ago. So 
you know, we'll see. We'll see. I would not surprise me if he goes in the top 10. And uh, I I will say I, I would have a hard time seeing him get by uh, Rick Hahn and, and the White Sox. That, that seems like a match made in heaven right now. Yeah, and it was one of those things where, you know, not that it was a reach ever, you know, but I just think, you know, you look at stuff where everybody looks at stuff and like with big media, I remember people reaching out and asking me, they're like, oh, this guy's like ranked in the 50s or whatever. Like, what do they do? And I'm like, just just wait, you know, <laughs> like it's yep. kind of like one of those. And and the Indiana basketball thing was up in the air at the time, and that's not really going to happen. So, yeah, I mean, that it's just going to be an interesting story to follow. What are your thoughts on? I mean, obviously, you know, you mentioned the age thing, right? And he is older and model teams will just cross him off the board immediately. But if he went to Indiana and played baseball in two years from now, he'd be considered young. So that that's like always True. been, it's always been humorous to me, like how that works, like how it's like, oh, yeah, he's old now, but in two years he'd be young and those same teams would consider him young. Well, that's, that's even kind of the crazy thing is he's, I don't want to put a negative spin on or negative connotation on Colson, but He's so old for the class, you know, 19 and five months, I believe is what he's going to be for the draft that not only is he going to be draft eligible in, in 2023, were he to end up playing for the Hoosiers, but he'd be 21 and, and five months at that point, which that's pretty average for the class. You know, that, that, that's not even necessarily young for the class. So, um, listen, I, have never had a problem with older players. You know, Jordan Lawler is an older player. Jared Kelnick was an older player. I don't think it's as big as a knock as it should be in this industry. Uh, I know that the, you know, the common sentiment is, uh, oh, he's 19 and a half. He's uh, more developed than he should be for, for this class, for, for, the, for his demographic. But, you know, you're talking about a six foot four shortstop that anybody who's laid eyes on Colson William or Colson Montgomery knows how much more impact and and muscle and projection that body has in it Uh, and he's just starting to get his swing controlled and stay connected all the way through the ball I mean it just he really didn't pop uh with the bat until October when it all started to click for him so I think there's a lot more projection left on Colson Montgomery and for me you'd be really hard pressed to find better clay yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, you know, they've been linked to a lot of guys. If he's gone and they don't go the college pitching route, some of the names, I mean, West Calf is a, uh, you know, a prep infielder as well. Max Muncie, I've heard Peyton Stovall for them too. So what are, what are your thoughts there, maybe where they could pivot to and what you would do and uh, your thoughts on some of those guys? Yeah, I think there's a, so my first inclination from what I've heard is, if, if Colson isn't there, I do think college pitching um, does kind of enamor Rick Hahn and, and this open window that they've got. I, I thought the Garrett Crochet pick last year was was really wise, and you saw how how much of a difference maker he was in the postseason last year before he got shut down with that forearm strain. I mean, his stuff is just different. The guy I would probably look for would be, would be Will Bednar out of Mississippi State, and he just happens to go tonight for Mississippi State. If he's not a starting pitcher, which we're going to go through the same song and dance here. You're talking about a guy that's 94 to 96 or 93 to 96 with a high, high riding fastball and a plus slider that if they needed him for the stretch run here, you know, he's the type of arm that you can call up and get outs. So Bednar would be, would certainly be the guy that I would look for. And then you mentioned another name, you know, if, if the if the right college pitcher isn't there, if the right college pitcher and, you know, with Madden and Bednar and, you know, those guys off the table, 
I think Munce, uh, Muncie makes a lot of sense for this team. Uh, he's he's rangy. He can do a little bit of everything. The bat plays. He's got good actions for the position. Obviously, he doesn't have the you know hugely projectable frame that Colson does. But you're talking about a six foot two, one hundred ninety pound you know shortstop here, who's really smooth on the dirt, and that sort of you know that sort of profile. Uh, has immense value, whether that be on the trade market or coming up through a system. You just look at what Cleveland has done with those types of profiles over the last five years, just a turn and burn. Um, but again, the kid's got present pull side power. Um, he doesn't get beat on inside velo, which I think is really important for a kid his age. He's got quick hands. He's got uh, a good barrel control. He's showcased a good hit tool. Um, so I think Muncie and Bednar would probably be the two names to watch. Personally, that that's the direction that I think I would go. I'm interested in, in just how the White Sox want to manage their bonus pool throughout this draft, and we'll get there in a second. But another name that I wanted to mention your way is Wes Calf. Is that mm-hmm. another high school option that the White Sox may be interested in? I think so. I think, you know, Wes Calf, the White Sox showed a lot of interest in Wes uh, through April and May. They uh, had a big scouting contingency out at his games, and they were awfully active at a uh, high school tournament, a tournament of the West Coast, if you will, in February, where they were pretty active. But the thing that kind of pushes me away from Kath, just based on what the White Sox seem to be looking to achieve here, is versatility, dynamic athleticism up the middle. Kath is more of a third base, first base, Matt Carpenter type of power profile. Um, and while I love the player, I mean, we've got Kath just outside of the top top 30, I think. Um, I don't know if he necessarily fits the same bucket that some of the other guys that they're looking at do. So if West Cath is there in the second round, I, you know, I think Rick Hahn and the White Sox could jump all over it, but I, I guess um, maybe he doesn't fit the same stamp as some of the other guys at 22. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things about the MLB draft that I feel like a lot of, I guess the common fan doesn't really pay attention to is that it's, it's, it really is a lot about money and it's, about the bonus pools, and, and you know that, obviously. But, you know, I think their slot is like 3.2 million. It might only be 3.1. But, you know, they the way that they've used their bonus pool lately <clears throat> is that, they you know, they've gone pretty top-heavy, and then they've, they've done a lot of savers late, and I think they're probably going to try to do similar. If they could come out of the first two days with three players in the first three rounds, I think they'd – they'd be happy with that. I mean, they can get to just under 7 million if they use the whole overage. What do you think is the best strategy for them? And then do you think it's realistic that they could, can they go prep prep and get, you know, a $2 million prep player to 57 possibly? Yeah, I think it's possible. And, you know, the White Sox, it's just a different year for them. You know, Madrigal and Vaughn were, were two players that at the top of their, you know, top of their class, um, you had a much bigger bonus pool to play with. And once you're picking down at 22, obviously maneuverability becomes a little bit more, more a name of the game. So do I think that they can get a $2 million player down to their second round pick? Absolutely. What is troubling for the White Sox right now, just in terms of who they're targeting. And, you know, if Colson Montgomery is the guy that they're looking at, um, he's received so much press and so much uh, bravado, you know, over the last two months that, if his camp is starting to think, you know, yeah, we can we can go to the White Sox at 22, um, 
what would have been under slot six weeks ago might now be closer to slot, which I think is, is a narrative that they're going to struggle with in talking with his representation. So I don't have any inside information on what, on what Colson Montgomery is expecting to receive. I can tell you just general industry, um, you know, thought process here is the university of Indiana hasn't had a long track record of, you know, keeping premier talent, um, that is draft eligible. So they have that going for them. You know, you're not, Colson's not committed to Vanderbilt, for example. So that's something that he can play in his cards, but yeah, I mean, it'll come down to what, uh, what Colson wants. It could come down to what any of the other guys they're interested in want, but it'll always be a numbers game in, in the major league baseball draft. And I think for me personally, that's what makes it most interesting is you don't, you don't take the best player available. Sometimes you take a player that's third on your board. That's willing to save you $600,000. So um, we'll see. I think, you know, the other guys, Muncie and Bednar or Kath, they could save you potentially more money. So it's something to monitor. Yeah, for sure. And I I don't even think it's just going to be the White Sox. I think a lot of teams, like that day two, you know, we're going to get up and watch it. And I, you know, I think I realized for the first time today hearing Jim Callis talk about it, like that, that Sunday night is just the first round and the comp round. So Mm-hmm. You know, the, the next morning, Monday is two through 10. I think by round four, everybody's taken seniors or guys that are looking to save money. So, and, you know, with that class of players, do you think, do you think there's better guys to be had like in that four through 10 round, just because of the, I mean, I know we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but the amount of guys that went back to school are the potential yeah. money saver guys a little bit better than they normally would be. Well, I think this year you're going to see money savers up and down the first round uh, in in one way or another. Um, You know, I I think every team is going to be looking for a haircut in the first round more so than they ever have. I would project that like two thirds of the first round is going to get some sort of a haircut because it's kind of the perfect it's kind of the perfect algorithm here. The deepest part of this class is the prep ranks and prep, uh, prep pitching. And you also have, like you said, uh, you know, five, six, seven guys that returned to school as college arms, and they're going to be sexy underslot uh, haircut picks as well. So, yeah, there, there's going to be a lot more money flying around in the second, third, fourth, and fifth round than I think we're probably accustomed to. I don't know if there's going to be anything. There, there might be a couple that are as wild as as Cole Wilcox to the Padres last year in the third round. That shocked everyone. Um, so it, it should make for good television, you know, through the fifth round, I would think. So, you know, looking at your most recent mock draft, um, you know, you, you have Henry Davis one to the pirates, obviously, um, you know, there's a lot going on. I think the pirates are likely shopping a deal as well. You know, there's some rumors that they might already have a deal with Marcelo Meyer, but I mean, look, I think those high school shortstops are going up there somewhere. Davis is going up there somewhere. Lighters, you know, I think going to force his way to Boston and then, you know, Baltimore's an obvious money saver team with somebody. What would you, I guess, if you were redoing it like today, how much of your top five would be completely different right now? You know, I think the mock draft that we put out took into consideration the bonus pools uh, pretty, pretty heavily because one thing that we really want to try and do over at prospects live is give authenticity and not just pump out a mock draft. That is a regurgitation of our top prospect lists. Um, I think in, in a perfect world, the pirates would have a deal that is, um, you know, a million dollars under their slot bonus for that pick with Meyer or Lawler. I think that would be what they would prefer. 
Um, but I don't necessarily know if that's going to happen. There's so much buzz surrounding Marcelo Meyer and 1-1 that, you know, in a lot of cases, this is going to be the only opportunity for this kid to get paid um, if it doesn't work out. And that happens. So you got to get as much money as you can. So for that reason, that's why we went with Henry Davis 1-1. That's by no means, um, you know, industry knowledge. It's just kind of a forecast of what we think could happen. And then you kind of see Meyer and, and Lawler and Lighter and Job, and they all just kind of slot in below that based on who's going to give the biggest haircut for which team. So I think, you know, one thing that I might change is I do think Texas likes Jack Lighter a little bit more than we've been led to believe. Um, but whether or not Jack Leiter is going to take a haircut, you know, with his profile it remains to be seen. And I do think that the the narrative surrounding him pricing himself down to Boston for full slot totally makes sense. That's really good stuff, Joe. And we're all looking forward to the draft, of course. A couple more, we'll let you go. You mentioned the talented prep shortstops. Uh, and, you know, throughout the mocks anywhere, you can find a lot of these shortstops going in the first round. Uh, and, and same to be said with the college arms, as you've been detailing. But how about the catchers? Is there a chance that a catcher falls that the White Sox are interested in? Maybe a Harry Ford or or a Joe Mack, possibly? Is is that a legitimate thing that Sox fans should keep an eye on? Are, are catchers legitimate first-round talents past the first 10, I would say? Maybe top 10, top 15? I, I don't, again, Harry Ford is another one of those guys that I think you're going to have a really hard time finding anyone higher on Harry Ford than, than we are as a team. We've got him number nine on our, on our current power rankings that we just pushed out. I, you know, just reading the tea leaves, I really think he's going to go in the middle teens. I don't think he's going to be there at 22. You know, Tyler Soderstrom fell last year into Oakland's lap when we had him going 13 to 15 and he fell to 24 or 25. I don't see that happening with Harry Ford just because he's such a supreme athlete that he doesn't need the label of a prep catcher. You could move him anywhere and he could let the bat eat. So I think that's one key differentiator between Soderstrom last year and Ford this year. Joe Mack is one guy that I certainly think could could be there for the White Sox. In fact, I would almost anticipate that he would be there for the White Sox. He's got a really impressive swing. You know, he hasn't had the loudest spring that I think a lot of uh, evaluators were expecting. He did just start like four weeks ago. But again, that could just be Russ. I, I think he could certainly be on the board. You know, guys like Adrian Del Castillo, if you wanted someone that could move fast with a big hit tool, he's certainly there. He's positionless, but uh, he could be available at 22 as a, as a big time underslot. He, he didn't have the season uh, with the power that a lot of people were expecting. But there's going to be some pretty enticing college catchers like Hunter Goodman and Nathan Hickey and, uh, you know, Matt Nelson that might be there in the second round for the White Sox as well. And I know you guys could covet one of those for uh, for your system, especially with the rumors going around that, uh, you know, Zach Collins could potentially be thrown out there as a, as a trade chip. I haven't heard anything on that. I've just read what you guys have read. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I don't think anybody would consider Zach Collins like completely untouchable. It's just hard to do like when he's serving the big league role that he is when they're trying to win, obviously. So, but you know, the last thing that we're going to shift to, I want to talk about the AL central just a little bit. Um, Detroit's picking at three. Kansas city is also in the top 10. Why don't we just start there? I mean, are you thinking prep shortstop, you know, for Detroit or, or Job possibly. And then, you know, I think, I, I mean, I think a lot of people now have Kumar fallen, down to Kansas City. So what do you think about those two clubs? 
Detroit, Detroit, from everyone that I've talked to and everything that I've heard, they really seem to covet one of Job, Leiter, or Meyer. I don't know, you know, which one they're going to go for. I don't know if they're going to go for any of them. But if one of those guys were to present a good, you know, a big underslot deal, I think, you know, Job is the guy that I look at and I say, if this guy offers you the opportunity to, to pick him and give you a million and a half dollar haircut, I just, the case can be made that Jackson Job, by the time he's 21 and a half, is going to be a better pitcher than what Kumar Rocker is right now. I think that's very possible. He's got the same quality slider. Uh, so I think that makes some sense. And with Detroit having one of the bigger draft pools this year, they could go really, really big if they went Job for a million and a half off at, at three and then, you know, blew up everything in the comp round A and at the beginning of the second round. You know, they they kind of did that last year and they ended up with Dylan Dingler. Um, so that's something to watch. I, I think that would, be a, that would be a fun pick for them to go with. But yeah, I think generally they're looking at lighter, Meyer or Job. I think they take Meyer if he's there at three. Um, and as far as the Royals go, like a lot of teams in that seven to 12 range, they're in a wait and see. If Rocker's there, I'm sure that Dayton Moore would like Rocker. He fits into their competitive window. He could potentially be with the big league club in 2022 if they're not too shy with innings limits and maybe getting him a few starts at, at low A this year. Um, he could see double A at the beginning of the year in 2022. But, you know, they've been connected to Khalil Watson. They've been connected to Brady House. They've been connected to Sam Bachman. Um, right now, it's just kind of a let's see how the dominoes fall and let's see who's available at seven. But if Kamar Rocker is there at seven, I do think that he makes a lot of sense for the Royals. Yeah, you would. Th- and they've taken, you know, they've taken a lot of college pitching lately. So, so mm-hmm. that, you know, the, and they, the, like, they like big conference performers for sure. And then, you know, the Indians and Twins, the Twins. You know, love power. Obviously, the Indians have their model where they, you know, they like young players, but they don't necessarily. It doesn't necessarily have to be high school guys. So, I mean, like maybe, like could Judd Fabian be an option for Cleveland or like one? You know, like they they like the you know they have their pitching profile and they have their their model too. So, Cleveland and Minnesota are the other two AL Central teams in the twenties. What about them? Minnesota has been pretty heavy of late, bringing in. Uh prep infielders and prep outfielders for workouts. So they also have a comp round pick. It wouldn't surprise me to see them go with a with a prep infielder with one of their first two picks. I think that makes a lot of sense. Some of the guys that have been getting some run up there, Peyton Stovall, um, Jackson Merrill, Cooper Kinney, uh, you know, a lot of uh, Isaiah Pacheco. A lot of these guys have been getting some run with Minnesota and they kind of fit that Keanu Cavaco mode from two or three years ago. So that might be something to watch for. The Indians, they, you know, like you said, they have a model. I was surprised when they went with Tanner Burns last year. I loved that pick, but it doesn't really fit kind of what they've done in the past. Um, I think Chase Petty makes a lot of sense. I could see Bubba Chandler. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Andrew Painter makes a lot of sense. But with the Indians, I would just expect athleticism, versatility, up the middle profile, or a you know, a, a a pitcher, a high school pitcher or a college pitcher that's already optimized. They don't need to tweak. They don't need to, you know, mess around with anything. And he, he can just move quick. So that's why I think Chase Petty is getting so much run in that organization and Andrew Painter as well. They make a lot of sense. So, you know, before we close with you, I, I swear nobody's listening and nobody's going to hear who do the, who do the White Sox end up with two weeks from now at number 22, if you had to guess. 
if I'm in Vegas and I'm, you know, betting the mortgage, I go with Colson Montgomery. My backup plan would be Will Bednar. Yeah, I think those would be my gold and silver medalists. Colson Montgomery is not too shabby at 22. For us White Sox fans and the more that we hear experts like you discuss uh, his profile, I think it's selling us, myself, James, you as well. I know you're big on Montgomery. Uh, we're yeah. fine with that. So I, I do think the White Sox are one of the teams that thinks that he can stay at shortstop. And look, I mean, you start throwing Corey Seager comps around. It's crazy. Like, I, I think it's a little, you know, the, the body looks the same and he looks similar defensively. Is he going to be like that type of offensive force? Who knows? But I think, you know, casual fans hear Corey Seager and they're like, oh, take that guy. Yeah, I think one thing, the the comp thing is, is there are comps that work and make sense. Like, I'll be the first to say, I'm not a huge fan of comps, but the Matt Carpenter, West Cath comp is one that I stand by. <laughs> it's steadfast, right? With with Corey Seager and Colson Montgomery, like I, I thought Corey Seager had a better hit tool when he came out than what Colson currently has, but Colson's got way more leverage and loft in his swing and projects to maybe even hit for a little more power than Corey Seager. Granted, Corey Seager's been dinged up, and we've we've never seen if you know he could become a forty home run guy. So I don't want to slap that title on him, but I do think Colson could be a thirty home run guy. I think he could be a two fifty to two sixty hitter at the next level, and I personally believe in his ability to stick at shortstop. I do think they look very similar at shortstop. And, you know, Corey Seager is a fine defensive shortstop. Do you have a favorite prospect that you've covered this year that kind of stands out among the rest, Joe? That's a good question. Um, I, I mean, personality-wise and, and meeting these kids and just getting to know their story and where they come from, Benny Montgomery and Anthony Solomedo really stick out. I, I, those two, it is harder to root for guys then I root for those two. They, they really just, um, they blew us away with interviews. They blew us away with their knowledge and self-awareness and baseball awareness. Um, they're going to be very, very good. And I believe that so long as they stay healthy. In terms of who I'm most intrigued by, just a guy that, you know, not enough people are talking about that I think should be a first round pick. I, I do go back to Trey Sweeney over at, at Eastern Illinois, six foot three, 210 pounds huge raw power it's a wonky swing but i think that you know that's the type of guy that i would bet on joe doyle joining us from prospects live that's prospectslive.com joe thanks so much for your time today yeah thanks guys it was a lot of fun you can follow joe on twitter at joe doyle that's doyle with a y m-i-l-b that's at Joe Doyle, M-I-L-B. You can also check out Lookout Landing, the SB Nation version of the Seattle Mariners coverage, as he's a writer over there as well. For James Fox and Joe Doyle, my name's Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Future Sox podcast. The Major League Baseball Amateur Draft is July 11th, so tune in. We'll be sure to revisit a lot of these conversations we've had on the podcast and see where the White Sox stand at 22 and beyond. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you all next time.